Today we're going to continue the, the discussion um, on the series The Russian Way of War. This is now part five. Um, I'm joined today um, by Dr. Philip Blood. What ho? Good afternoon, chaps. And uh, Neil Pointer, who is um, also OC Royal Horse Engineers. How are you doing, Neil? We're, we're, we're going to drop that one at some point, aren't we, Ben? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hello, all. Hello, all. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, it, it makes you, that's, a, that's a warm, cosy feel. Fireside, if you will. Wasn't that the guy charred in Zulu in a red tunic going round on a horse? Is that it? Am I getting it or am I getting it all confused? No, no, no. I'll, the Royal Horse Engineers was a nickname. I think it was more an internal nickname for the armoured engineers within oh, the sappers okay. rather than the Royal Horse Artillery. It was the Royal Horse Engineers. So that's okay. where it came from. I, I, I'm quite happy to keep uh, sports prevention officer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not giving to fancy titles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'm just going to keep to that one. It keeps me fun. Um, <coughs> so, serious heads on now. Um, so we're going to be discussing what's what's going on. Uh, a lot has changed uh, since I last spoke with Phil at the beginning of the, of the week. Um, we we've got Neil in because we've invited Neil uh, into this discussion because he's going to sort of be bringing a perspective that neither Phil nor I necessarily have, and he has the experience which I think the listener will find exceptionally interesting into into the current state of play um, with what's what's happening um, in Ukraine, uh, especially around the use of um, battle groups and uh, armored forces. I mean, Neil, so I don't make an absolute cock up of, of what, what you're trying to say, and I don't. Don't misinterpret it. I'm just going to sort of let you go on this one. Cool. OK, so a um, number of things that are going on. I can summarise it. In, and this is almost conceptual that we're moving into a new stage of land warfare. Or it's not a new stage, it's a repeat. And it's the constant to and fro that there is between the defence and the attack and which one has got supremacy. And what we're seeing quite clearly at the moment, and in fact, this was backed up, and I, I can't remember which American general tweeted about this this morning, but he, he was basically saying that we're moving into a stage where defensive firepower has preeminence over the attack. Now, let's just do a little bit of history on this. You know, if you go back to the First World War, you had trench warfare. Why? And it extended trench warfare because the infantry couldn't get close to the other trenches because of the machine gun. And therefore, we went into the war of attrition. And there was no real way to break the stalemate. Now, if you go up to the conceptual level of um, strategy and tactics, and we're really talking about perhaps the operational and tactical level here rather than the strategic. At some point, and, and, you know, if you look at the British Army's principles, the principle of defence is, you know, you, you only go into defence to shape the battlefield to go on to the attack. Because the only way you win eventually is to attack. You've got to seize ground. You've got to. And if, you, if we relate this to the Ukraine situation now. 
at the if if Ukraine are going to win, and I mean really win, they've got to attack the Russian positions, and they've got to feel they can. Right? How do you do this when what they have just demonstrated is that with well placed defensive positions and what seems to be the preeminence now of guided weapons. And I don't just mean against anti-tank, but I also mean against anti-air. Now, is this that the warheads have got better? I think it's more what people are saying is that it's the guidance systems. So what you've got is this ability for, a, you know, and we used to joke about this in the army, about small bands of determined men with handheld anti-tank weapons. Well, this is now the fact. If you look at the strategy that the Ukraine army has used, ambushes, shoot and scoot, a few people, ambush a convoy. The convoy can't maneuver off the road because of the mud. That's a completely different issue, which really we don't want to get into now. But how do you, what we're getting into now is that armour, if I go back into the 80s, 90s, manoeuvre was the god. The tank was at its preeminence. Um, in that we, we suddenly had um, the, the weaponry, uh, we had the manoeuvrability, and, and it's something to think about with armour. The principles of armour are firepower, mobility and protection. Um, every tank, every armoured vehicle is um, a mix of those three. And there's some ratio that you look at and there's a compromise. You can't have the perfect tank. It doesn't exist because there's a compromise somewhere. But in the 80s, 90s, we had Challenger, we had Abrams, we had Leclerc, we had T-80. And the anti-armour weapons weren't really there yet. So massive manoeuvre warfare, you know, and tanks on the ground were God. Now what we're seeing is, yeah, I if I can canalize you and ambush you with, and it would appear that Javelin can get through anything. How do you attack? How does a modern army now go on the assault? Now, it's an interesting question, and I, let me now bring in something else that's important. I, I'm reading a book by Jim Store. Hi, Jim, if by any chance you happen to listen to this. And I am going to tweet you later. Um, it's a book called Battle Group, Lessons of the Unfought Battles of the Cold War. And in it, um, there's some reference given to some analysis that was done by the British and that they looked at 159 land campaigns from the 20th century. And they looked at what were the common factors of those that succeeded and those that didn't. Now, here's the thing. Those that achieved a breakthrough, a significant breakthrough within two days of launching the operation had an 84% success rate, okay? So within two days, a significant breakthrough, within two days of launching the operation, 84%. Those that took longer than two days 
only had a 15% success rate. Okay, that's pretty significant. Now, when they broke, now, once they looked at those, they went, right, let's look at those 84%. What were the common characteristics? And this is where it gets interesting in terms of the modern battlefield. So, <clears throat> four things. Surprise. Hey, big, big hell surprise. You know, surprise has always been one of the first principles of war at every level. And the point they make in this analysis is it's not just at the strategic level. It's at every level, operational, strate a strategic, operational, tactical level. The more you can achieve surprise, the more greater your chances of winning. OK, doesn't sound that obvious. Doesn't sound that difficult to comprehend. Now, the other one is what they call shock effect. That is, and let me see if I can just um, find the definition of shock effect. It basically, it's where you impose a paralysis of action on the enemy by whatever you do, by, and, and surprise is a factor in that, but a lot of it is speed. Speed, where you come from, how you do it, um, but achieving what they call shock effect. And then the ability to seize opportunity and exploit. So you achieve a local success, you can then exploit. Right. Now, they, the side question to this one, and I've seen that the tank is over. <laughs> they, you know, the days of the tank have gone. Right. OK, fine. You have to be able to maneuver to attack. You have to be able to deliver shock action. You have to be able to deliver this shock effect. Now, I'll tell you what. Um, back in 1980-something, when, you know, I don't know, strange beasts walked the earth and etc. I was part of the engineer squadron. In fact, I was the ops officer of the engineer squadron that ran and built the Staff College demo in Germany. And as part of the end of that was a battle group attack um, by a 3-1 battle group, so 3-1 meaning three squadrons of tanks, one of infantry on a company position. That enables you to have a squadron of tanks in fire support, a squadron of, a tanks, of tanks that assaults, and then up to a squadron in intimate support of the infantry when they arrive on the position. Now, what you haven't got at that demonstration is the artillery that suppresses your, fire, your ability to fire your javelin. Now, what I'm getting at here is how do you and what we've perhaps seen demonstrated or poorly demonstrated that so far. And my question is, can the Ukrainians produce coordinated effect? Do they have any ability to overcome? Presumably, we, we haven't really seen yet. Do the Russians have the quality of guided weapons? Can the Russians produce this defensive e effect? But we seem to have got into we've got into a new stage. We've also got drones, of course, for reconnaissance and also for hitting your buildups. My question, what are we into here? 
have we got a new stage of warfare and does this play into and i think phil this is your bit potentially does this play into the russians hands in the current situation of potentially attritional war rather than the ukraine's army which really has to attack how does it attack when it has just demonstrated perfectly how to defend in the current climate i chuck this one up in the air and go there you go have a chew on that one gentlemen because i think there's a real challenge here i think my personal view there's something about the combined the combined arms attack at every level air ground the combo and now this is classic if you go back to the cold war days when we used to get this um, the soviet videos of them training this is what they absolutely specialized in coming in with everything hind attack play heck attack helicopters um tanks on the charge artillery and that coordination that enables your infantry and your armor to get onto the enemy position before they can fire back and that's the art form here you know how do you do it or are we now into stalemate again and is this now another arms race for the attack to overcome the defense i don't know but it's an interesting topic go <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, Phil's making some notes. So the first thing that comes up to me, um, and, and you're absolutely spot on, is the combined arms attack. You know, yeah. the Soviets drilled this solidly. Once they'd got the helicopter forces sorted in the early 60s, it was the key point. It reached its epoch in, in Afghanistan. Regardless of, of everything else that went around it, their air, their air ground support was faultless. No two ways about it. The doctrine worked. What I've struggled with in terms of air power is where the VKS have seemed to have dropped that standard of coordination um, mm. and command and control that they, they excelled at in Afghanistan. And, you know, it was still very much, you could see it still in Georgia um, and to a point in Syria. But I think in Syria, the, the cracks were starting to show. I don't know why. But we, we sort of fast forward to this point. The one thing that I have noticed is there's this lack of coordination between air power and artillery. And so there is, this, you know, the Russians are either using one or the other, not in combination. Now, I appreciate it is very hard to deliver air power in an area where you've got rounds ch being chucked up in the air up to 10,000 feet. You can't operate safely within that unless you have a good coordination system. And they seem to have lost that. Now, I know they've changed a lot of their communication systems. I think the latest one that they had, the secure one, was operating on a 3G system. The 3G masts that, the, that were still situated in Ukraine were taken out by the Russians. So they, they sort of blinded themselves straight away. Um, the, 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 I, I don't know what, what the what standard pilot the VKS have at the moment. But the, initially, they, they showed strong. Um, they were aggressive, especially the the, uh, the the SU-24 lads. They were they were coming in hard. They were coming in fast. Um, helicopter pilots and teams seem to be a little bit more reticent. Seem to be a bit more standoffish. And now they've virtually disappeared from the battle space. I don't exactly know what's going on there. I well, find it really peculiar. So, you know, it, it's an interesting one because you get 
there's got to be a progression down as you get closer to the enemy, as your attack force, your assault force gets closer to the enemy. You have to go down to more and more localized direct fire weapons. So you start with your artillery. There's then a point where your helicopters take over. You know, and you clear the air, you say last rounds in the air, yeah. you know, and the art form is that the moment that last air burst stops over the enemy position or ground burst is that the helicopters are coming in, rockets, whatever. Now, the moment those are getting and the tanks are getting closer and closer, your assault, your assault's probably now rolling. So now you let rip from your, your fire support base. Now, here's another point about the tank. How many javelin can a platoon carry? Let's say we had a company of infantry doing the fire support. OK, company 90, they've got 90 javelin. You can only carry one each. And how many can you carry in the back of your transport? Not many before it's full. I checked yesterday using Challenger. Challenger has carries 50 rounds of main armament ammunition. Put a squadron of 14 Challenger. 14 times 50 is a big number. <laughs> you know, you've got a lot of ammo that's also anti-tank, also anti-personnel. You start firing Hesh, it yep. fires you in. Then you've got the assault squadron that arrives at the last minute. So switch fire, but they the assault the fire support squadron can see them. That's the whole point. So they switch fire to depth targets, depth engagement, whatever. Assault squadron rolls through, and as soon as the assault squadron has rolled through, the actual um, combat, the uh, infantry company with its intimate support tanks arrives mm -hmm. on the position. It's all about coordination. But I'm intrigued. One, as your point, Ben, why have the Russians, why did the Russians not, weren't they able to do that? Because you can suppress fire. You can stop someone, you can stop an infantryman popping up and firing his javelin from a defensive position. You start putting air bursts over them. They're not coming out. You know, it's, it's an intriguing situation. I don't know the answer as to why it's happening but this is what ukraine has got to overcome if the russians have got the same capability of guided weapons have we reached a new stalemate this this is really my question and the silence was deafening <laughs> i'm looking at phil because I, I can see phil's got a got a yeah. response he's formulating isn't he yeah, he's like that. Yeah, he's considering it. Um, you 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 covered a lot of ground, Neil. Yeah, I know. It's and a it, it's a conceptual question. And hi, Jim. We were we were in the we were taught by the same character, Richard Holmes, back in the day, um, and we graduated on the same day with another. Um, great guy, uh, Roger Cirillo, who was ADT, ADC to sink Europe in the 1980s. And he was with the 11th Armoured 
regiment of the US Army. Mm-hmm. Was um, he wrote a history of the European command. Uh, I'm only saying that so I can buy time to find the place that I'm actually looking for. Um, <laughs> it's called good, good Maskarovka. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, the, the, the uh, Putin boys are teaching me how to use that, although my my um, ability to throw the word is getting worse and worse as time goes on. It's obviously something wrong, but the, the, the area where I was looking at was um, the whole thing that has confused me about the Russian armed services is this reform that came into operation around about 2008, um, where there's so many different stories. The 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 um, the uh, military balance listed the Russian forces to have an enormous, enormous capability in armoured fighting vehicles. And and you just looked at those thing, those numbers and you're thinking very large, very large, thousand here, thousand there. And then I was taken by the artillery that 4,342 pieces of artillery. Mm. Uh, it's on the military balance today. That's page 196. Now, what, what fascinates me about all of that artillery is it's not just that it's self-propelled, there's huge, huge 152 millimeter self-propelled guns, um, a massive range. I mean, it, you look to the other armies, Nobody's got quite the range of artillery that the, the Russians are still um, building into their um, organization of battle. And in this whole exercise, the thing that stuck out for me is, has been, since the very beginning, has been the, the nature of this coordinated bombing. What the, the um, Russian artillery call it the annihilation bombardment, which is where you you aim, this is actually worked into their dogma and doctrine, um, that you aim to destroy 90% of an area and anything in it. Um, so you would find a grid coordinate for a certain hectare. Um, like we said before, the hectare is about the size of Trafalgar Square. And you would literally turn an area that size into dust. And anything that's in it, is to be completely and utterly wiped out. Now, if they're running to grid coordinates and and are prepared not to care about the damage that they do to civil communities, we are indeed in a form of attrition, which is staggering. Now, if the Russian army retreats to the border just in front of those guns, the Ukrainian army if it tries to take up space or route that Russian army on the leave, it's going to get, it's, it's literally going to walk into areas which are just going to rubbleize them. Uh, and, and that can, that, that, I, that I think is why the Ukrainian army has been so reluctant to take up the, 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 um, the chase. Because surely all military army, all, all modern armies would, if they see if they see a retreat, they want the route because they know if they route the enemy forces, it's going to be a long time before they come back. And and the thing that struck me was the Russian army, forget what they left behind with the horrors and the 
the criminality is that they left they left the scene of the crime largely intact and orderly it wasn't mayhem okay a couple of soldiers missed the truck and and there was all that fuss but if you looked at it they just walked away ukrainians then took over the ground discovered what was going on and there was no rush to to chase them i think the ukrainians are still in a very weak position and they can't follow up because then they go into those ranges because those russian self-propelled guns and that fixed artillery can hit them from 20 kilometers away and if you can't get drones and air cover over that artillery to stop it from doing what it's doing because i suspect strongly suspect that all that mobile anti-aircraft capability which we never saw supporting the front end of the russian advance is protecting all of that artillery so it's almost like untouchable zones yeah. and, and it goes back to what i said in a previous paper using the case of um Sidor Kovpak, who is the famous Soviet partisan general who who marched 1500 kilometers behind German lines. What they need is somebody like Kovpak who can dream up an idea to get at those guns. Because mm -hmm. if you can get to those guns, then Russia yeah. is done. Uh, it's a really interesting. The only other part of that. And this comes back to the maneuver piece. Because as you were talking, I'm going, yeah, OK, so. You're absolutely right. If it's a fixed target, I can pulverize it. If it's moving at speed, you can't. And but if you but you've still got to have your target acquisition capability. You know, you've got to know what's going on. So again, are the Russians using drones? for target acquisition, could well be, don't know. But Do the Russians the, have satellites like Elon Musk? Yeah, but that, but your download speed, a tactical target that's moving on the ground, you're talking seconds. Now, I understand that, but all of this capability, if it's all linked in, then the Russians are no more, no less advanced than the West. That's all I'm, that, that's all I'm saying, all I'm asking. Yeah. yeah but it's just the challenge you know why why do, you're absolutely right i don't want to sit in the kill zone but if i'm moving at speed and modern armor can still when the ground is right so i'm just wondering whether the the mud that we've talked about is now of course playing back against ukraine you know is that has that been part of the reason why they couldn't pursue at speed they also, what's the air threat again? How painful is the Ukraine? Um, Plus, the Russians left mines all over the roads, which made it difficult to just run after them. Yep. Well, you know, counter, you know, counter mobility. Yep, absolutely. You, you know, ex sapper here. That's what you do. You you foul everything up. You get inside people's heads. You start leaving tin plates on the ground with only a random number of mines under them. Then all you have to do is to put tin plates on the ground. You know, it, 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 you get inside people's heads with counter mobility and, you know, you can really play with their mind. There was a hand grenade, wasn't there, linked to two doors? Yeah. So, I mean, they, they, again, you see, that all, kill, that all makes 
makes me wonder why there wasn't why there was such a, an easy departure and then continuation of the war elsewhere. It's telling me that Putin isn't fighting the war that the West wants him to fight. I agree. <laughs> um, in, the, in the sense that it's now moved away. I think if I go back to that first point, I'm, or first couple of points I made about what makes the penetration, you know, that two and a half day, that that two days, 84% success rate if you get the breakthrough in two days. And as I say, this is not, not so much I'm, I'm conceptualising here. Have we seen the end of the ability right now to achieve breakthrough in two and a half days? Because defensive firepower now has, whether it's artillery or anti-tank guided weapons, we've seen on the um, British Defence Review, can't remember what it was called, the Integrated Review, the IR Review, um, about the emphasis on depth fire. Okay, that's great. That stops your enemy winning. I can stop you winning. But how do I win? How do how do how do we or or is this you know, how do we break the stalemate? And that's the bit, you know, that I'm sort of interested in here, because that's what I'm kind of seeing. Because you're right, Phil. The Ukraines couldn't get after them. Why not? The Russians haven't been able to mount a significant breakthrough yet. Not by what not by any modern army standards. We've not had a breakthrough. Yeah, I mean, okay, you've got the big lodgements down in the south, and he's made a lot of space, and the Russian armies haven't been, you know, they haven't lost. The invasion hasn't lost. It's about two-thirds. They've won two-thirds, and they've lost a third. Well, as far as I can see. Uh, But the, the, the thing here is, I'm still struck by the notion that he didn't really want to have massive invasion but to inflict short-term destruction um because i've also wondered whether if you're forcing so many people out into refugee status and flooding west you're adding another factor now i'm wondering as you're talking to me whether okay the rapid deployment to get a coup de main against the kiev um government um that obviously reflects what happened in afghanistan when they took the head out of the afghanistan government the problem was the follow-up yep in this one they they missed the intervention and and that intervention has been common to czechoslovakia and hungary and mm-hmm. have you they've always wanted to take out the leadership because you take out the leadership then obviously yeah. you've got the country by the um, curlies and what have you um, but here that failed, then operations around Kiev failed, then they retreat, then they move into a more attack position destroying Mariupol, um, plus more activity going on, yet still more activity of weapons firing and, and, what, and, and, and things happening down in the south. It, there's no indication that he wants to surrender. There's more refugees going into the West. You know, half the half of me is saying he's at war with the West, 
and he's using the Ukraine as a hammer place to force such chaos and horror and breakdown that all of that lands on the West and the West feels responsible, which is, you know, we are dealing with a lunatic here, but he's a very, very clever lunatic who, who would probably calculate that kind of thing down to the last diamond penny. Um, and the other is whether he actually, you know, we've got friends and colleagues on Twitter who are saying to us he wants this mission, a crusade scenario against Ukraine. Well, you know, demolishing a whole load of buildings in Mariupol, keeping the church and then rebuilding that city into something like Chechnya and Grozny and those places were rebuilt after that conflict. Maybe we're seeing a form of warfare where your defensive idea is actually being pushed as a as a as an offensive exercise in destroying the fringes of the Ukraine piece by piece. I yeah, and but I, I guess here what constitutes the win you know and this is what we don't quite understand now i said right at the beginning of this and i looked at when i looked at the maps and i said there are three options for start for stalin yeah, sorry it's freudian slip there there are three options for putin calling brezhnev yeah there are three options for putin here Option one, secure the um, breakaway zones and those particular oblasts. Expand the border a bit. As he said, he recognised the borders of those Donetsk. And what's the other one? Can't remember. Anyway, secure those. The other one was, hey, do what's easy. Secure the east. Put the Dnieper as your back land barrier between you and NATO, bloody great obstacle, just seize the way. Or you go all in and you go for the whole of Ukraine. And a lot of that was down to what happened in the south. And I was I've been watching the battle around Kirkov. Excuse me if I haven't got that pronunciation right. But that battle in the south and whether they went for the real advance across the south continued towards the west now they've got completely stymied there and in fact they've been driven back and I, I believe the last report i saw is that there is actually fighting in kirkov again so the ukrainians are actually almost securing that line of the dnieper now does putin go now for option two or is he just going for option one, as in the oblasts uh, in the the old areas that he controlled anyway, but securing their boundary and making them officially a part of Russia, but destruction within them? Now, this is what I think we have to kind of understand. What is the end? What are the end games here? Well, I mean, I've always thought that the end game here is to annihilate the Ukraine. Um, uh, I, I plumb for genocide because I think it is. Um, I called it mechanical genocide. All, all of the scholars don't like it because um, I've stepped in early. My view is if you know what you're facing very quickly, then governments and, and uh, decision making bodies can step in and 
come up with a very quick solution or at least attempt to find a solution rather than prevaricating over definitions of what is and what isn't. Um, what I never expected was that all of these people would start going on about um, definitions and we can't do this, we can't do that. Um, we're in a very, very serious situation which everybody is now affected. And the idea that somehow if we put people in there or if we use air cover, that Putin is immediately going to tactical or superior nuclear weapons, I've never really believed for a second. I, I just think the whole, I think it's convenient for the West to accept that conclusion and not want to fight. Um, and I think also if they go into a, a, a situation where we had in Yugoslavia where the NATO was flying missions over uh, the combatants, stopping them and hitting places like, uh, in, in that case, it was Belgrade, um, but threatening to um, stop Russian operations over Ukraine, to me, to me, isn't going to trigger a nuclear war. And I know everybody says, oh yeah, but he will do because he's a nasty man and all the rest of it. I don't think he's the kind of person who does commit suicide. It's just not the game. I think here we've got this problem that we have to come up with a, a better, we have to come up with a solution. I mean, the one that I've come up with in the last two weeks was that the Red Cross and um, United Nations step in. And okay, I know brave people will do brave things. And I know that the Red Cross and the United Nations will stand in front of enemy, you know, combatant forces and have died. I, I understand that. Uh, and they understand it, which is why they volunteer to do it. And they're incredibly brave people and they don't get half the credit they bloody well deserve. Mm -hmm. But my view is if you put Red Cross ships in Odessa and you put Red Cross um, forces across lines, it's going to be very, very difficult for Putin to um, commit gross acts of destruction and uh, killing and hope, hope that the that people like China and India and the rest are going to stand by him. Because I think very quickly um, he would lose so much support from the area, from these 35 countries that have kind of sided with him. I think they would leave him. And I think people in Russia would leave him. It, it's one thing to it's one thing to shoot down um I don't know, jets and NATO jets and blow up buildings and all the rest of it. It's not quite so easy to destroy um, white ships with bloody great big red crosses on and declare that the ship was a battleship defending Odessa. It just, it's not going to work, is it? So, okay, I'm putting people's lives at risk, but that's the nature of the Red Cross and United Nations forces. But until a third party steps into this, it's never going to stop. <clears throat> no, you're absolutely right. Uh, and this is a very interesting point you say about he is using the the, the nemesis of, of, of nuclear and special weapons um, very much as, 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 as a chief piece on the, the chessboard. Like yourself, you know, the, the Soviet military doctrine is purely keyed up for the use of special weapons as a defensive measure only. Um, and people forget this, you know, we, we, we still, there, there are echoes as a fear of the Cold War, who's going to strike first? Is it going to be the, the Russian bearer or is it going to be Uncle Sam? And this mentality has to shift and, and it's, I think it's not helped by a lot of the talking heads 
not being very clear on or not understanding contemporary doctrine, as well as not understanding what and, and arguing the toss over genocide. You know, that, that definition was very clearly made in 1944. And like yourself, Phil, I do believe that's what he's doing. He, you know, even in his most basic terms, he's focusing on a particular ethnic group and he's eradicating them. Yeah. I don't see how. What but he's putting is, but, civilians under the guns. And, and well, this, absolutely, yeah. And this goes back to Neil's point that he's using the, 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 the defensive nature of war as in it's on the high at the moment. That that's the way. It's convenient for nations to have defensive weapons because for for a country like Britain, it can pronounce the fact that it's never going to go to offensive war ever again. I, I can understand that argument for Western countries to say that statement. What it doesn't take into consideration that sometimes you have to do offensive operations to win to win a defensive battle. Correct. Because completely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I. What I've seen in the last week with military experts is, well, I mean, honestly. well, th this is the thing, and 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 you have picked up on the keywords military experts, and they have proven that ninety percent of them are not. They know their field. I know my field. I'm not the be all and end all of everything. I, uh, you know, accepting your, um, I wasn't. Limitations. I'm, not, I'm not attacking. The guys like the, there's a general who I've been following who appeared clearly he was the NATO general Ben I can't remember his name at the moment but, but he was a NATO general and he clearly he's not like the hurtling guy who comes up with anything that comes off the internet there's this Ben Ben general who is a former NATO general and he is hot he 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 just talks. You think, well, where the hell has this guy been from the beginning? Because he's the only one who seems to know what the hell he's talking about. There have been discussions like this is the first time anybody's gone out on offensive war and lost. Excuse me. Excuse me. What did Hitler do? Or did I miss that one? <laughs> is, is this Ben Hodges? It's Ben Hodges, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I I I think that's the one. Sorry, I'm just searching for him. Thank you for the name. Yeah, but um, because he's, I think he's the one who published this morning that what I was talking about. Uh, he did a twenty-five sensible individual in the whole bloody game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> somebody, somebody came gave me a, a tweet. Um, my friend Chris said, "What do you make of this?" And it was from someone called Elliot Cohn, who is a strange person in America. And I had to decipher it. And half of it was Guy Sire, who was, you know, the German soldier. We're not yes. sure an accurate. Yeah. And yeah, the rest we've had that discussion, haven't we? Yeah. And the other was some kind of reference to the film um, Cross of Iron. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> what? What on earth is this? Is he asking about Ukraine now, or does he talk about being in a trench in the Tayman Peninsula in 1944? And and I just I asked Chris to translate it, and he said, "I hope you might have been able to." Um, but th th this is the horror show. The, the, you're, and, ag and again, it actually, what it, you, I, I, I've seen quite a few references, for example, to Stalingrad, and this is nothing like. And I, I'm trying to work out. I don't know if you guys can help, or you guys can see any 
actual sim similarities between the two because there are none that I can see on the face of it. Yet we get destruction in warfare, so that's not exclusive to Stalingrad. Um, so what what is this 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 false comparison, this false equivalent of, of what happened to the Sixth Army in 1942, 43? Okay, it's not, it's not my opinion. Now. It's all about trying to sell books on Normandy and some other stuff <laughs> by. By 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 writing by saying one thing, it's like the it's like the little hut alternative approach. You talk about a war, which is a load of old rubbish, <laughs> and then you say, "Well, of course, I've written about Normandy or some other odd place." So yeah, I know I know I might be you know. Shots, Shots. were fired. <laughs> yeah, targets will fall when hit. Um. So just to just to pick up on the Stalingrad point, because there is something here about the artillery thing. Fight Obua, I was for a year and a half the Royal Engineers Obua specialist, for want of a better term. Okay, and yeah. that I was um the captain instructor at the battlefield engineer wing who had responsibility for oper engineer operations in Obua. So, and if you start going back through the study of how it works, it's a ratio. If you if you start bringing down real destruction, Monte Cassino is a good example. Stalingrad is a good example. You can try and rubbleize, but if you have a determined enemy, they can hold out for ages. Now, I think that's the only comparison that's worthwhile looking at. You know, if you have a determined enemy who can maintain their support, who can maintain logistics, maintain a um, input of forces in to defend it, you, despite overwhelming manpower and firepower, you can hold it. It's a nightmare. You know, it's a ratio of something like, I think it's quoted as 10 to 1. You know, going a well-prepared obua position. Uh, so I, I to, to give you a, so I think it's 10 to 1. You have to have 10 times the force to attack the, 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 the group that's holding it. And I remember one exercise, and it was uh, on a Salisbury plane, uh, Imber Village, for those who know it. Um... And we went in and in 24 hours, we, and with a really quite untrained engineer troop under supervision, to quote the um, exercise commander, who I think was a two-star, we turned a battalion objective into a brigade objective in 24 hours. Obua can be an absolute night. I think that is the only um useful use of stalingrad on this one is well, that well where i get a lot of my ideas from is from um a british a former uh british uh colonel who fought at the battle of casino okay he was um he was margaret uh, he was churchill's chief whip and then later margaret thatcher's uh ted heath's chief whip and okay. went to into um, uh, China with them 
um, when China was being opened up in 1970. Ted Heath went and Nixon, all of that. And in conversation I had with him, um, he was taken out of the line in casino. And what actually happened was during the fighting, they put the map, he put the, the, the positions of the map over the bonnet of a Jeep. And while they were talking, his driver was shot in the head by a German sniper. Okay. And that just caused a complete meltdown at that point. And as I spoke to him afterwards, he was then sent back to England and became part of the battle school system and trained under, you know, how the battle tactics were being yeah. readied and what have you. And he said that the problem was you're creating the idea of the of your own troops, that you put so much artillery and bombardment on an area that the opponent is no longer going to be able to function. And what happened with the Germans was that they did a rotation of one set of troops for another. So one got damaged and then in came the second lot. And then when that when that actually occurred, there were snipers in positions and they took out, in his this case, his driver. And so the impact of the bombardments begin to grind against you. Yep. Uh, that was the point of what he was. Uh, yeah. And I've taken that on board. My concern here is the bombardments have not been driven against the military. They've been driven against the civilians. Yeah. So we're in a different ballgame. And actually, if you'd have looked at the, the the Russian use of artillery back in the day, they would not have bombard. They wouldn't have expended all their shells on civilians. They'd have expended them on the enemy. So the, the, the issue we have here is why are they destroying Ukrainian cities? We, we, we have to go back to that problem again. Yep. I, I guess, uh, yes, and, and, and here we are, stalemate, you know, but the, the um, Russians, how do they, though, so, let, so let's, say they, we, let's say we've got the stalemate now where we are and where we see what's going on. If they're going to conquer, they've still got to advance again. Yeah, they've, they've got to take more ground. You know, I think their current range, I, I think I looked, their big guns can reach out 30K, I think now. Yes, yeah, I think it's 30K. I've got 34 in my mind. Don't quote me. Um, their BM-27 rocket system is about the same, I think. OK, but to use that, you've still got to get in range to take out cities, to take out towns. You've got to get in range. Now, what? this is my point. It, it applies both ways. Great. Putin can absolutely condemn all the towns and cities in his area that are within his artillery range. OK, he can condemn it, but that's not the whole of Ukraine. No, it's not. Yeah. But if you look at what happened uh, yesterday, uh, Ukrainian officials warn residents in the east that they had the last chance to flee before a major offer uh, before a major Russian offensive is expected in the Donbass region. Okay. okay. 
if he's doing this uh, pizza style and he takes that Donbass area and then stops again like he's been, you know, like this one, what's to stop him from building, excavating more artillery positions, bringing in the troops and setting up a new firebase and going again? You, you see what I'm saying? If he goes, if this is piecemeal destruction, yep, we're in a <laughs> we're in a really very very unpleasant place. Then it it, it is an interesting one. Um, and this again, we, we're almost doing this sort of full circle, aren't we, to 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 what you were saying about genocide and 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 looking at what and, and you know that that classic definition that was written by Lemkin. Um, you know, you are looking at the in, the intentional destruction of a people, um, of a national group. You know, you know Ukrainians, um, and and the use of artillery. I th I think he's been a little. I mean, he's got such huge reserves of artillery, and that's not being discussed. That that if you actually look at the figures that are on paper, it's quite scary. What he has at, at the moment in in theatre compared to what he's got in reserve. It's only a small amount, you know. Um, and going back to Neil's point of that sort of first two and a half days, I, th I think he's missed the boat on a few things. But as we discussed um, when we when we spoke last time, Phil, you know, he, he's only abandoned two of his six points. He, I, th I think there's going to be a switch of focus. Is he going to go back to this push from the east, um, heading westwards? Um, and and, and as, as Neil said, is he going to use the Dnieper now as a wall up against which he can now come north and south? Um, the beauty know, of him getting to for for his for his position, if he gets that full bank of that river, he can then move on to the flanks of the river to operations yeah. from Odessa going up towards Moldova, towards Romania and Hungary, and he he has. He then gets all the options. And of course, if he can use Belarus to always threaten Kiev without actually having to go into Kiev, uh, sorry, Kiev, um, he, he, he's basically holding, he's, he's doing what the, the German, what the Russians did have always done in war, which is to hold the defenders under their guns and generally melt their reserves. I, but okay let's let's just come back what they have demonstrated up until now is an inability to do combined arms operations that's right yeah. now i'll tell you what the biggest combined arms operation you can do on the most dangerous one is an opposed major river crossing if he wants to cross the river what if he does right. but then you've got to secure but then both people have got a secure border now, I would not want to be doing with the demonstration of anti-tank or guided weapons now. The ability to, de to disrupt an assault river crossing is huge. You know, I. You, you can put all the artillery you like on it. I just I, I hold back and then I pull back in as soon as you start to cross. You know, it, it, it gets it to be a very dangerous game if you want to start crossing rivers. I think the danger here is if large numbers of refugees start flooding across those bridges, 
they become targets for him to be really unpleasant. And then that brings in, I think, and what we're talking about, and ultimately here, of course, is does he have the economic and um, what's the word, resource capability to keep producing ammunition? I don't know if he, you know, what what is the economic and capability impact of the sanctions of everything else on his ability to maintain that level of ammunition usage and losses? Think, well, there was something interesting on the on the Twitter today, which is apparently the Ministry of Defence guys in Russia have been um, screwed. Um, what do you call it? Squirreling away um, up to thirty-eight billion dollars, which would probably, which would probably explain the, the conversation that Ben and I had earlier this week, which was, why is the Russian budget in what? Why is the Russian military budget such a mess? Well, if they've been stealing money from underneath and at the same time telling Putin that they can win this. And have yet actually undermined themselves. Um, I think we're in a very un interesting position because if <clears throat> Putin can claim traitors within the family have sabotaged the, the war, and that all of these young men are dead because of these oligarchs and what have you, we are in a very, very strange place because you'll have all of that old Afghansty, Soviet and imperialist groupings all coming together saying, right, we want, we're, we're fighting now for a new society. And that gives Putin a huge uplift. And Russians have done that before in their history. Now, how that impacts on him producing munitions, I haven't got a clue. I mean, the, the, it, you try and find something about the Russian military industrial complex and you very quickly run into a hole of nothing. Nobody's written anything. Nobody's done anything about the Russians for almost 20 years, academically. And therein lies the problem because we stopped studying them. And this was discussed, wasn't it? Like, you know, the last session where we we know nothing about what they're doing because we we you know we we won the Cold War. They were no longer a threat. We ignored them. Take your eye off the ball. This is what happens. Well, a friend of mine's a Russianist, and he's been reading stuff on my bit. You know, literally for me, he doesn't want to play on Twitter. Um, his, his view is, can I supply stuff for you to read? I've also got friends in the Russian financial system who've been, uh, I'm not going to mention any names, but have passed commentaries to me. And and the two have said, one has said there is a huge capability there that we all forget. That was the military expert. And the, and the finance expert said, you, everybody's fooling themselves with these sanctions because we're getting around them any way we want. So, you know, when I, when, I, when I looked at the China-Russian border and the Korean area and looked at that and just looked at the freight moving through from what I could, from what I could glean from freight movements and train movements and everything else, 
there seemed to be an awful lot of support coming from China. And whether that includes weapons, I don't know. I mean, do Chinese weapons have a mark on them that says we're China, made in China? Or do they actually get made with Russian Sanskrit? You know, I mean, how, how, all of that end user scenario, does it actually work with the Russians and the Chinese? I suspect not in these cases. Also, and it also occurred to me, and I'm going to point it, raise this now at this very moment, how does China test its weapons? Yeah, now that is a very good point. Almost, it's very sinister, but very good point. Yeah, because I have a sinister mind, and as you know, <laughs> fairly devious and unpleasant. That's why I'm being abandoned by all of them: the genocidists, the strategic studyists, the war studyists, the military historians, and those who write books about Normandy. So, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, really, outing, really outing Normandy in this session. Normandy, the Ardennes, and anywhere else west of the Rhine is definitely not applicable to this war. Okay. Does that kind of, you know, <laughs> clarify my position in all of this? <laughs> Uh, welcome if you've just joined us, the Ancients Lounge. <laughs> Where <are> we? <laughs> next, what are we talking about? <laughs> no, I mean, you, you know, you, you raise an absolutely solid point about what, what is the support the Chinese are giving. I, I, anyway, what is... I said before was about re reclaiming for all of us who do work in Eastern Europe and Russia and the Eastern Front and the war, the real war in the West during the Second World War, uh, I'm reclaiming that ground. <laughs> Again, another well, question. <laughs> Neil, what, what, how do we... <laughs> and Phil, Phil has now been elevated to QM status in the corner with, <laughs> with, with the Black Labrador and a big bottle of whiskey. I assume that's Quartermaster, is it? Yeah. yeah. Is, that an, is that still an NCO position? No, no, no. no. It, it's your it's your it, it's your uh, major or lieutenant colonel who's come all the way through the ranks. Ah, oh, okay, that's good. I can go with that. Yeah, and uh, yeah. we would just put him in the corner with a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he, the ordinary soldier here. But is as ever the the person who you get on the wrong side of at your peril. <laughs> He's normally he was normally the RSM as well. So well he knows you, all so, your secrets. Yes. And <laughs> what you also tended to find, especially as a commanding officer, is that your QM was probably a, a senior staff sergeant when you joined as a troop commander. <laughs> uh, not an unknown. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine, literally, I think his QM when he was CO was his troop staff sergeant when he joined. So you talk about relationships, you know, as you go up through, you know, you go, sort of go on your parallel tracks as an officer and a, and a soldier and you tend to meet up again. <laughs> so, you know, the, your QM knows all your deep and dark secrets. There's one abiding constant in all my relatives who fought in the Second World War. They have huge records of disobedience. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, I don't my relative, material, really. <laughs> one relative who who hit sergeant at least four times during the war. 
it's like the Landstrecker who had Velcro behind his stripes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all knew one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so this, this has been rather interesting, but I still go back to, and if, with everything we've talked about, I think we're in a new stage of warfare. I think you guys need to talk to Jim's store if you can and and engage that because I think you, you, you're you talking something there, Neil, which I hadn't contemplated, that the idea that we're into a defensive attrition mm. or First World War scenario only with modern weapons where everybody's standing off against each other. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I... I I think what we see, what we have seen, is definitely a huge amount of development in the track of this war. It's gone, it's gone through several phases, and it and the phases have been so quick. Yeah, it, it's caught many, even the decent experts, short, because of the it's it's been very fast. You know, we've gone from one next stage, next stage. Russians have called a second phase, but actually, if you look at it, we've probably been for about four or five phases. Yeah. I, <clears throat> this, the, these discussions are actually exceptionally interesting because, you know, our discussions are also evolving around and we're, we're responding. I, I like to, we're responding quite well to what's going on um, in Ukraine. In Ukraine, sorry. Um, and and to echo what Phil said, that you know, I, th I think you, you're introducing, and you've identified a whole new, um, the dawn of a new concept of operations, which I, I think has always been in the back of some people's minds, perhaps 30 years ago, but then it has remained there, and all of a sudden we, we, it's now at the forefront, um, facilitated in part by a lot of the technological changes that have happened over the past 10, 15 years. Um, so you know. This is this is going to be interesting to see how this one pans out. It'll also be interesting to see if um, who listens to this and develops this. Um, I think uh, it would be interesting also if you brought Machetti, you know, our friend Machetti, into this because he's been arguing that because he's a lawyer, he's been looking at the way the Lemkin prevention of genocide um, work is coming into people's thinking, and his knowledge of law is is fascinating. Uh, it strikes me we've got to a stage where armies need to be prepared for confronting genocide, which yeah. is a new phase. I mean, we've always talked about genocide as being on the, you know, on the fringe, the Rwanda, Yugoslavia, but maybe now it's got to be main, main at the front, front end of every activity. And I don't just mean the JAG officers saying you can't hit that target. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying the troops have got to go in there pre-prepared to deal with prevention of genocidal activity and that includes the mass rapes uh, mass killings and 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 what and all the destruction the the challenge there is quite interesting what's immediately come into my mind is you said that is what type of what one of the things you certainly i'm going back into my um preparations for my staff college exams in war studies is what type of war are you starting? Is this, uh, um, are, are we fighting a limited war for limited aims or is this total war? And when there's genocide involved, 
there's got to be total war because one side is fighting total war. So what? Yeah. how do you respond? And I'll just leave that question hanging. I think that's a very good point. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Um, this, uh, again, <clears throat> absolutely um, riveting series of discussions. Um, this will go... You know, I, I I would like to think that you know, as listeners, this is now really starting to to energise your own thinking about what's what's happening in in Ukraine and your own consideration. Um, as both my guests today, Phil um, and Neil, have said, there there are clearly people we we need to talk and we need to invite on, and, I, and I'll extend the French the the hand of friendship and see what happens. And it'd be nice to have them on. Um, wrapping it up, uh, Phil, Neil, thank you so much for sharing your time, your thoughts, and your expertise today with myself and listeners. Um, listener, thank you very much indeed for, for stay, staying with us. Um, we will be back, I imagine, next week at some point with, to further on this discussion, wherever you are, have a lovely weekend. Phil, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ben, and well done for reaching me here in my Ardennes bunker. <laughs> The joys of Ton 10. Thank you so much. Right, wherever you are, like I say, do take care and see you and uh, hope to catch up with you very, very soon.